seems that uh, if we are to accept the common Hamish is saying that the more flush of the mitzvah, the greater the Hisnagdus. So it seems that uh, perhaps the Yitzhahara is uh, content to, uh, to let large numbers of Jews hear discussions of Simcha, maybe even Amuna, but Achdus apparently is uh, <laughs> the, least, the least respondent court, it seems. Yeah. You know, there are many um, discussions of what the toyelis of Achtus and Klaliso, what those toyelis are. But before we can discuss the, the positive aspects and the benefits to be derived from Achtus, I think we have to sort of define our terms first off. Avada is the mitzvah of Vayahavta Racha Kamocha. The mitzvah same in our Torah. We can mimikayim it in our actions, very possibly according to some poskim. We can fulfill it in a machshava as well, if we simply have machshavas of, of empathy for other members of Kayasram. But the union of Achdus seems to go a bit further than Stam Mahavasasar. When we speak about Achtas, unity amongst Klayasar, it conjures up an image of a feeling of national togetherness. Am Echad, Ish Echad, Leiv Echad. As Rashi says, by Matan Torah, even Shem Yisrael Negedahar, Ish Echad, Leiv Echad, seems to be this, this union of togetherness amongst Klal Yisrael, which is a special union that goes beyond the mere parameters of the Yahavas Yisrael of the Yahavtarach And this Achtos, this elusive Achtos, is what I think the best definition we can give. It is a spiritual nationalism. It is a sense of unity with one's fellow Jew, which is based upon a sense of unity of spirit, the neshamas of Klai Yisrael being bound to each other from Sinai for all eternity, and that this, this unity amongst Klai Yisrael carries with it assorted obligations and assorted blessings. Now the problem that we confront here this evening, Orthodox, Achtas, is it possible? Do we really want it? And we limited the subject to Orthodox Achtas because to step outside the parameters of Orthodoxy brings us onto the horns of the various dilemmas we discussed this afternoon, the question of Tenikshin Nizhba and this and that, and it's a whole different discussion beyond the boundaries of orthodoxy. So we will confine ourselves this evening to, to the parameters of orthodoxy and seek to understand what it is that we speak about when we desire achdus and what it is that stands in the way of achdus. Now, before we do that, I'd like to read to you two quotes. And 
the one thing that these quotes can certainly tell us uh, is that um, not all thinkers are stationary uh, in their thoughts. The two sources here, and this may be a little pretentious, but I think it'll help illustrate the subject matter we have before us this evening. The two selections are two responses that I gave to tradition symposia, which were held in two different times. In, um, in the tradition symposia of 1990, uh, uh, I'm sorry, this is the earlier one. This is a tradition symposium that took place sometime in the early, early 90s. I'm not exactly sure when. I put it somewhere around 91, 92. Um, and at that time, they asked us a question about whether the Jewish community, the Orthodox community, can ever be together, whether we can ever have a climate in which Torah values and living are one, in which minor differences and distinctions are overlooked, and all of Kleistro comes together. Okay. Don't get upset when I read this to you. <laughs> this is what I wrote 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Okay. I did two things in this response here. The first thing <coughs> I did, where well, I was a bit nasty about those elements of left-wing modern orthodoxy that I saw as less than committed to basic halach and basic Torah mitzvahs. And therefore, I said over here, the differences between the confused modern Orthodox and other Torah Jews are not merely, quote, slightly differing opinions, quote, or, quote, modes of dress, quote. These people may subjectively be Tinoko Shanishbu, but objectively they are Kalim, who willfully and comfortably ignore basic Torah laws and doctrines. Easy social mingling with them could prove to be most dangerous to serious Torah Jews. It may, of course, be approached by experts in Kiriv with that goal in mind, but to suggest that they be brought into the Torah community as ideological and communal equals is flawed philosophically and threatening to all normative Torah lifestyles. To illustrate, a Torah Jew would not want his children frequenting a Jewish home where, for example, washing, benching, tzitzis wearing, <coughs> laws governing women's dress and hair covering, laws prohibiting mixed dancing and swimming, laws prohibiting certain forms of entertainment, the list goes on and on, are comfortably ignored. Nor, nor would he want his children attending a school or a camp where the children of such homes predominate, nor would he, nor would he himself want to daven learn or socialize in an environment where products of such homes form the majority. I then proceeded from that little bit of nastiness to, to another. <coughs> and um, I said the following. Um, my comments have thus far covered the confused modern orthodox, the serious modern orthodox are quite different. They are part of the Torah world, and it is to that Torah world we now turn. Here it seems to me almost all heated differences are the result of arguments which touch on questions basic to the spiritual and physical survival of Kal Yisrael. As such, it seems unrealistic and probably wrong to ask that these disagreements be seen as, quote, slight, unquote. Is that which divides Natura Karta from Gush Emonim slight? Is Rav Shach's critique of Vababich slight? Does Oz Shalom see Kach as a force with which it should live together, or vice versa? Was the Belzerov's attack on the Eidah Haredes in the early 80s based on modes of dress or minor divergence? 
can the satma condemnation of Lubavitch be seen as, quote, differing opinions, quote? All the above and many other instances are cases where leaders and segments of Klai Yisrael see other leaders and segments as guilty of grave doctrinal error, at times bordering on or going beyond heresy, or at least representing immediate spiritual and at times physical danger to all Jews. It is inconceivable that these conflicts be not heated. In fact, it seems to me that those who constantly ask, quote, why are we fighting, quote, are generally those who are indifferent ideologically and hence emotionally to the questions at stake. Kach, Neturei Karta, and Oz Shalom see each other as distorting Judaism and endangering Jews. This is a matter of conviction and passion and should be. America, by its very nature, poisons its inhabitants into spouting meaningless cliches such as, quote, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, quote, quote, at least he's sincere, quote, all these slogans are primitive extensions of enlightenment relativism. Torah Jews are by their nature full of passion, a passion that abhors heresy. It is only nat natural that if a Torah Jew feels that someone else is distorting the Torah's message or threatening the Jewish community, he will be angered by it. Torah wrote nearly ninth. 1998, 1998, uh, a few years later, six, seven years later, tradition has somewhat similar symposium. And um, here I wrote, I wrote as follows. Uh, they asked why, they, they, the question was, as I recall it, that in the 50s, Rabbi Moshe and Rabban uh, and, uh, Kotler used to speak at RCA conventions. And they asked why that wouldn't be wouldn't be possible today. And I, I responded, I did not live, obviously, but the larger <laughs> question is when they wouldn't go otherwise. Um, I, I, I say the following. For, for too many Orthodox Jews, the basics of faith are dimly perceived and barely articulated. It needs to be restated constantly that there are binding doctrines and practices that define our faith. For simplicity's sake, the Anima Amin and Shulchanot with the corollary that those who have correct beliefs and practices are in the Torah camp, regardless of other differences. From the Ramaz school to Neturei Karta, this is what distinguishes us from those, as blameless as they may be due to historical and social pressures, who are outside the fold of correct doxa and praxa, belief and, and practice. It is the articulation of this simple truth which will go a long way toward healing divisions within orthodoxy. Our current emphasis on divisions over secondary matters is what renders public gatherings such as those of the 50s impossible today and could be healed by a rearticulation of basics. So, um, we have here a somewhat different um, response to the same question in the early 90s uh, than we had in the, uh, in the late 90s. Um, nonetheless, the questions that were raised in my response in the early 90s are certainly valid questions. If somebody feels that an other approach within orthodoxy is, let's say, a physical danger for the Jewish people, or if someone feels that a certain approach within orthodoxy is a spiritual danger to the Jewish people, then that is the point at which a discussion of achdus has to step beyond the realm of pleasing rhetoric and has to grapple with some very real and difficult questions. And I think that uh, some of the examples that I gave, uh, you know, really can serve to illustrate the difficulty of the question. This is, 
by using these extreme examples, it will bring home what we are grappling with here. It's one thing to say, we're all from Jews, we're all Orthodox, we're all Torah Jews, why, why can't we all just get along? You know, sort of, Allah, Allah, Rodney King. And when, when one looks at the examples that I cite here, you know, let's say, you know, Kach, which is an extreme example of sort of very staunch uh, right-wing form of Zionism. The extreme of orthodox anti-Zionism. Oz Shalom, which in those days was a more popular organization than it is today, but these were religious Zionists who were very much committed to, to the peace camp and to reconciliation with the Palestinians and so on and so forth. Now again, I don't even want to get into a question of have some of these positions changed. That's not, not what I'm discussing here. But the question we are discussing is these three camps, all with equal sincerity, see the other ones as not only distorting Torah, but as endangering the Jewish people. These are all camps that say, if Klal Yisrael followed you, they say to each other, uh, we would be in grave danger as a people. And can opinions of that sort be expressed under an umbrella that would be called the umbrella of Achtas? Let's take it from some other examples. Um, uh, let's see. Take the Rav Shach and Lubavitch, for example. And I don't mean necessarily the Indian of, of Mashiach. Before the Indian of Mashiach was ever, ever debated. Just the, some of the extreme positions that Lubavitch took on certain issues, Rav Shach's critique of those extreme positions, and on the other hand, the extreme claims that Chabad Hasidus makes about certain things, about the centrality of Chabad in, in, in the totality of the cosmos, these two positions put up against each other are very, very difficult to, um, to, to subsume under a rubric of, of Achtas. If, 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 if Chabad claims that there are mystical sources that tell us, for example, and again, uh, it may seem like a simple example, but it's a very powerful example, if, a, if, if Chabad claims there are mystical sources that we are not permitted to sleep in the sukkah even if the weather be A-OK -okay, and Rav Shach says there is no justification for this within the Torah Judaism that we know and Chabad cites a mystical tradition that is unknown to any element of Kalyasrol except themselves then again what, what are we to make of this and can this somehow be brought together in some kind of in some kind of actus? Um, let's cite another example. The battle against modernism that was waged by ultra-Orthodox Hungarian Judaism, which declared that any form of umbrella organizations with, with the non-Orthodox was rank heresy. Let's take the, the cherem in Yerushalayim by the Yishuv Hayashen against secular studies, which was seen as, as the, the absolute end of Klal Yisrael, secular studies. Can the Yishuv Hayashen uh, the old-time Yerushalayim a combination of Tamide Hagra and and uh, and and Tamide Sofa that that comprised the Yishuv Hayashin in Eretz Yisrael, who fought tooth and nail against any deviation from their what some would describe as ultra-orthodox opposition to secularism. Is there somehow some way that they could view Rav Shamshonfol Hirsch, that they could view Rav Cook, that they could view Rav Soloveitchik? as under the same umbrella of some kind of achtus, of course they would fervently deny it. On the other hand, let's, let's turn the coin over on the other side. And let's take those who view 
the the um, the political sovereignty achieved by the Jewish people over Eretz Yisrael as an extraordinary bracha for the Jewish people. Some even suggest that it's the beginning of the ultimate geula for the Jewish people. But many many think it's a good, tremendous bracha. But Gashmius or Baruchnius, can those who maintain that position, Talmidim of Rav Kook, Talmidim of Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kook, who even up the ante of his father a little bit in certain areas, is it possible that they should view those who would deny the very process to view them under some umbrella that would be a friendly, smiley type of achdus. So the questions that I raised back in the original traditional symposium are not easily set aside by any means. It again, uh, the point that I made here that it's generally those who don't have a strong commitment on any one of these issues who are the most glib in their profession of the possibility of achdus. It is those of us I don't know about myself, but it is anybody who feels strongly on these issues who's going to find it very, very difficult to say, okay, achtas, divisions don't matter, these questions don't matter, or at least these questions shouldn't engage us with passion, they shouldn't anger us. Now, I thought in order to clarify things, it would be worth breaking down the differences between various segments of orthodoxy. And I listed them under five categories. Um, how one segment of orthodoxy can view others. The first distinction is what I would call the equal but distinct. For example, um, by and large, um, various schools of Musa, by and large, and I say very hesitant by and large here, uh, different schools of Hasidim would say in more rational moments would probably say that the other drachim that are similar to us are equal but distinct. Now again, even here, there are extraordinary patriotic claims made by one and all. I mean, one of the, I, I suppose one of the several thousand reasons why the, why the book, The Making of a Godel, has become, um, you know, worth $500 on eBay is, is, is because is because it, 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 it writes there of some of the passion which the various schools of Musser brought to each other. Kelim and Slobodka were not, as they are portrayed in, in, in contemporary history books, easy bedfellows. There was a very, very bitter machloikis that took place in Lita between uh, Kelim and Slobodka. And certainly amongst us, see them, we're all aware that uh, occasionally they disagree. <laughs> So the the equal the equal but distinct the equal but distinct theory is, is only going to take us so far. But nonetheless the first classification of disagreement is equal but distinct. The second classification would be uh, not equal but okay. And this is generally what I would say, for example, within what we would call Khareda Yiddishkeit. Generally, Misnagdim would say about Hasidim, all right, it's not the yeshiva world, it's not the derech of the gedolim, all right, but it's, you know, it's Elohim, you know, it's Hasidim, they don't learn so well, whatever. It, it, it's, it's not equal, but it's, uh, you know, it's all right at the end of the day. And Hasidim would probably say about the yeshiva world, they don't have derech of Hashem, 
you know, there would be a condescending acceptance of a watered-down form of what Yiddishkeit should be. Um, now, again, it's, it's easy from a removed perspective to laugh, and I smile as well, when we say these things to each other. But if one scratches a bit beneath the surface, one will see that there are deep disagreements over various ways of looking at the world, deep disagreements over how one should behave, which is going to be very difficult once again to put a smiley after sign. Let me give an example. Um, I went to Sfera Yeshiva for many years, and there was a distinct list of which svarim, which chasidish svarim were allowed in the base members. Then there was a list of those that were allowed the Oitzar Svarim under lock and key. And then there was a further list of those that were not allowed altogether. Now this, this list was not promulgated by wild men. This list was promulgated by people that were both wise and sweet and loving who wanted to give over to their Talmidim a certain particular derech and avodah sashem and that they felt that exposure in a at a very delicate age to other drachim would distort that. Like for example, um, I remember there was a tremendous tumult yeshiva once when one of the boys had gone to Williamsburg during Shovim. During Shovim, amongst Hasidim, amongst Sfardim, it's a particular zman for tshuva, particularly associated with, with sexual sins. And in Satma, the Satmarov would speak at great length at Shaloshudas about this topic. And Satmarov, and generally Hungarian Hasidim in general, Hungarian Ashtayism in general, this was a topic that was discussed openly, at great length, with elaborate crying, and much public ado was made over the topic of sexual sin during the weeks of Shavu. The Skvera Mahalach, this topic and this taiva, was to keep it off the table that the best way to have the Talmidim and the yeshiva, best way to keep them away from this subject was to concentrate them in, in learning and in mitzvahs and in davening, to s- discuss this subject in as oblique and distant a manner as possible, and that was seen as the means to bring a bacha to the Kedusha and Tahara that he should be at. Now, if given these two givens, to say that a square bacha should go to Williamsburg and Shavim, and go to Satmarov Shavim, is obviously very problematic because he's going to be exposed to a mahalach which deals with the problems of taiva in a way that was directly and diametrically opposed to the way that these problems were treated in the square circles. And Kedoyim, if you want to talk about Slapatka and Navar, they can say it's heaven and earth. So there are very distinct approaches within Klai's world to certain things. And to put a smiley face on it is, is very, very, is, is, is very difficult. You know, we have a similar example, of it's one of the greatest examples there is. Um, we're all aware of Rav Hirsch and his sheet of term Derech Well, some people know that Rav Schwab, Rav Shimon Schwab, uh, learned in, in Litvashi Yeshivas. And he wrote letters to various Litvashi Gedolim asking them about Rav Hirsch's Shittas. He wrote to Rabbi Bear, he wrote to Rabbi Hanan. And Rabbi Bear and Rabbi Hanan both answered the same answer, basically. 
which was that obviously Rav Hirsch was a was a stark and he was a big tzaddik and so on and so forth. But as everybody knows, he couldn't have meant the sheet of Torah Derech Eretz as anything else than a hirah shah for the for the spiritually paraplegic of Germany. But that but that obviously anybody who had a, a, a healthy spiritual upbringing and wasn't in a, in a sarkanis nefashos as German Jewry were obviously our first was a tzaddik he wasn't advocating this as something serious for Jews this was a way to, to be makar of German Jewry now of course for anybody who has read Ravrosh's writings this is a very 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 difficult if not impossible proposition to maintain but again once one realizes that Refersh was not saying this as a Hirosh, he was not saying this as, as, as a Bidiyev, would Rabbarach Bear have known that? Then what kind of shuva would he have written? The friendly, the lovey dovey shuva is based upon a misreading of Hirsch. Would Rabbarach Bear have read Hirsch correctly? Would he, he would not have been capable, of, apparently, would not have been, probably would not have been capable of writing, of writing that kind of shuva. The third level of disagreement is what I call not equal and distorting basics. So when we said not equal but okay, all right, we're in the same ballpark. Not equal but distorting basics. And I think that example of Reversion would, would be a tremendous example. That to the great Geoinim and Tamid HaChachamim and Gedolim of Eastern Europe, the notion, the notion that secular studies should be pursued not only for Parnassah, not only as a Bidiyevit, but that somehow study of God's handiwork in the physical world, the historical world, the study of poetry, I mean Refresh went very far, Refresh went very far, there, were, there was uh, always great celebrations of, 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 of Schiller's poetry, and that's not me in, uh, in, 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 in his school in, in Frankfurt, he was a great, great fan of Schiller um, and would, would Eastern Europe have known this? This would have been seen as not equal and distorting basics, would it have been understood properly? And vice versa if you read the 19 letters well, Rav Hirsch is very happy about the emancipation. He's very happy about the emancipation because now Jews will be able to be what Jews should be. We can now become the Mensch Yisrael. We can now become a Jew who worships God through the totality of creation. We can now address the whole world. We can now become Orla Amim. We can now become the Ramelech's Kohan of Kadosh. And this was not the agenda of the yeshivas of, of, of Litta or of Hungary and the facetious yeshivas, it's not their agenda. So not equal but distorting basics. Then we have not equal and dangerous. And again, we could perhaps apply to the previous category. But not equal but dangerous, I think we get to very much in the Zionism question. Because there, both sides feel that the other position is physically endangering the Jewish people. Um, the anti-Zionist position believes that Zionism endangers the Jewish people. The Zionist position believes the anti-Zionist endanger, endanger the Jewish people. And, and the, the, the non-Zionist position, the, the Aguda position, well, believes whatever believes. <laughs> whatever, they believe something, something in the middle somewhere. There. Um, but in any event, they, they each believe that the other is, is endangering the Jewish people. And to call, to be able to classify all this as somehow subject to a smiley achtas is a big problem. And then finally, there's what I would call not equal and beyond the pale, which means that at times, either correctly or incorrectly, Orthodox Jews will accuse other Jews who call themselves Orthodox of having stepped beyond outside of Orthodoxy. And here again, we have a tremendous problem. 
And again, this certainly relates to the anti-Zionists, certainly called the Zionists as having stepped beyond the pale. Um, certainly there, there are many who accuse uh, the ultra-left of modern orthodoxy of having stepped beyond the pale. Um, with the orthodox feminism, there are many who accuse it of having stepped beyond the pale in certain areas. And so here, it's not only a question of uh, distorting basics, it's not only a question of danger, but there's a questioning actually of the orthodox credentials of one's opponent. And then the question is, can all this somehow be brought under Aftas? So when we, we take this question of Aftas and we move it from the, um, um, is it possible, do we really want it, when we sort of condescend in the title almost to those who, who um, we, we said the paper tiger of someone who opposes Aftas, but yet when we put on the table the realities of what prevents Aftas, we see that there are, in fact, grave problems here which demand serious answers and a serious solution. But yet on the other hand, we do see that Schiller, and here I do mean me, moved uh, considerably from the early 90s when he was proclaiming the impossibility and non-desirability of this Aftas to the point where a few years ago he was saying, listen, if a Jew believes in the Animam and he keeps the Shulchan Aruch, he's in the ballpark, why can't we all just get, get along? Um, the articulation of this simple truth would go a long way toward healing divisions within orthodoxy. What happened to me over, over the intervening years? Well, first of all, I want to explore a little bit some of the possible good that could come out of Aftas. By Aftas, I said at the beginning of this discussion, we have to go back to my original definitions, a spiritual nationalism a deep sense of, leakage, of linkage and unity with all Jews that are shown Torah mitzvahs. A sense that we are all one. We are all part of one body. And this, of course, fulfills the mitzvah of Haftarech uh, Kamoicha. It helps make our hearts, as we discussed Friday night, there is a, a certain compassion, a certain openness, a certain love that a Jewish heart should have, certainly towards fellow Jews, certainly towards Jews that are Shemit Torah Mitzvahs. So Achtas is the fulfillment of that kind of heart, that Lev Toiv, we see mentioned in Pirkei Avos, Achtas is a, f- a fulfillment of that Lev Toiv. So a sense of Achtas helps us to have the kind of heart that you should have. It's brought down in many sources in Sifrei Kabbalah and Sifrei Hasidus that Aftas will be Makar of the Geula. That at a time when Jews will live together in Aftas with each other, this will be an aspect of Kirov HaGeula. It's actually brought down, I saw this evening, um, from one of Sifrei Hasidus, that, this is one of the typical Sifrei that the, the aspect of Sifrei Hasidus, that... Um, That the reason for the Hisgalus Hazoya to the Talmudim from Shem Bayochoi was because there was tremendous Achtas among them. That there was such an Achtas that that opened up the heavenly heavenly realms and the Hisgalus Hazoya took place then. But anyway, an element of Geula. And finally, all the Svarim bring down that Achtas, it causes Hamtokas Adinim. That when Jews live together in peace and harmony and love with each other, that keeps away Kitroigim and Dinim from Klaistrol. At this point in history, when Klaistrol is facing extraordinary dangers that we're facing in Israel all over, all over the place, France, America, whatever. Certainly we would need today, it would seem, more than many other times in Jewish history, the Achtas which brings about the Hamtaka Sardina. So these are some of the things that make, that make Achtas desirable. What makes Achtas undesirable is obviously the kind of things that I mentioned before. It can weaken one's own particular derech, it can lower one's own particular standards, 
and it may in fact weaken our commitment to basics if extended to those about whom we believe legitimately, which is certainly possible, that they stand beyond the pale. So is it possible somehow to be aware of all these differences and all these powerful disagreements and yet have a spirit of aftus, which seems to be what sort of moved me over the years. Um, in general, I have to give it, make a personal confession, which is that if, if, if there is any uh, theme that I, I perceive within the development of my own psyche as it applies to uh, shitas over the years, I find myself always sort of careening uh, willy-nilly towards uh, uh, more charitable positions, um, uh, more embracing positions than I once had. I suppose the uh, exuberance and arrogance of, of youth uh, is, leads us away from this. And hopefully the longer we live, the more we realize the frailty of the human condition, as, as, the, uh, as, as, as Cotton Mather taught in the New England Primer, and, and Adam's Fall, We Sinned All. And uh, there is a certain weakness and to all of humanity, and we are part of that humanity. So as one goes on in life, I, I think that one's charitable embrace of others uh, grows, or at least hopefully grows, when we realize the, uh, the burden, the burdens that life places upon us. So I suppose that psychologically, and all, all shitas are a combination of psychology and logic, I think, uh, that I have moved generally in, in, that, uh, in that direction over the years. But the questions are real. And how can we go about answering them? How can we go about suggesting a solution to these, to these problems? Well, I think there are two or three areas we can head in towards a possible resolution, towards a possible solution. The first is to expand the parameters of that which is acceptable within Torah mitzvahs. And to that, I'd like to propose a working definition, which I found very helpful. And that is the distinction between essential and applied Torah. By essential Torah, I mean that which is written the Ferish in the Svarim. That which it says in Torah Shabbat that which it says in Torah Shabbat the basics, the animam, the Shulchan Arach the basics of Torah mitzvahs that makes you in if you're with them and out if you're not with them. Other areas are areas of applied Torah. For example, the question of secular studies, the question of Zionism, the question of, of, of the, the, the women's issues. Within limitations, all these issues, I think, are areas of applied Torah. But what do I mean by applied Torah? We can look into a Shulchan Aruch and find out basics of, of Shabbos and Kashras and the Shittas and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. But when it comes to areas of Hashkafa, outside of the basics, what everybody is doing is taking certain Sukkim, taking certain Mamare Chazal, and we are applying them with understanding to certain topical issues. That's what everybody's doing when it comes to any of these controversial subjects. Rav Hirsch had his Sukkim and Gemaras, and the Gedolis in Europe had theirs, 
and those who oppose Zionism, those who favored Zionism, and even those who after 1948 opted for non-Zionism, they all had they all had their particular mahalas based upon their psukim and their agadatism and their memory chazal and their rabbeim. And again, it makes us uncomfortable to hear it expressed in these terms because we all so do love our own. And, and we all so do, and we've, we've all been so inspired by our own that it makes it so difficult for us to be able to say that that other fellow over there has pretty juicy Mama Rechazal and pretty juicy Psukim, just as we do. It's so difficult because we've all staked so much personally on the decisions that we've made. We've staked so much in terms of our children, in terms of our shuls, in terms of our lifestyles. We've staked so much on it. And I got an interesting story, which, uh, and this is, this is, you know, if you don't stretch the envelope and, and, and speak honestly, sometimes the points don't come across, and I hope everybody stays with me on this. There was a protest once um, that Rabbi Avi Weiss was staging, some very pro-Israel protest. And there were Naturi Karta counter-demonstrators there at this protest. And Rabbi Weiss went over to them. I'm not always a big fan of Rabbi Weiss. Rabbi Weiss went over to me, he says, listen, he says, you know, I understand where you guys are coming from, he says. He says, says I know we have the same purpose here, he says. He says I want to save Jewish lives. You want to save Jewish lives. He said, I'd like you to come to my shul and express your perspective to my people. Um... They declined. <laughs> as, as, as you might have expected. But I have to say that I think w- there was a great deal of wisdom in what he said. I don't know if in his more excitable moments he would say that. But at that moment he said that. He said, we both want to save Jewish lives. So I think the way you go about it, obviously he thought it was a terrible, tragic mistake. And they... If they would be as kind as he was at that moment, which generally they're not, but they would say he's making a terrible, tragic, yet well-intentioned mistake. And I think if we can grant that, if we can grant that within orthodoxy, and we'll talk about those that are on the borderline in a second, but that within orthodoxy, if one is well-intentioned, and if one is working from the sources, that we have to accord a respect of intent if not of conclusion and respect of intent goes a long way towards respect of person and of sheet in other words to, to, to take a much less touchy and painful example uh, the Satma Sveta Shalvin problem that would you be a Sveta you should say like this listen we have our Mahalach how to grapple with the Eight Sahara of Taiva Satma of Ahizmah you know, as the old Hasidic is saying, a kelp of a from Sveiki and Vekfetzig, that uh, uh, a calf who sucks from two cows gets sick. So that we, we can't mix, we can't combine these drachim. That it's just not going to work. The Svera Mahal of Ligabishovim, the Sat Mahal can't work together. But Afad the Satmarov has Mahalach. That was a Mahalach grounded in a certain logic. And we have great respect for that. We have respect for the sincerity of intent. We have respect for the research of sources, but we have a different conclusion. And this, I think, would go a long way to, in, to conferring 
spiritual dignity uh, on those who oppose our conclusions within orthodoxy. And again, I'm going to repeat again. A, the realization that one, once you get out of the nitty-gritty of halakha and basics of amuna, there's a heck of a lot of freewheeling you can do with psukim and ma'amare chazal, much more than we think. You can do a lot of things and put together a lot of conclusions, and that we have to respect the fact that others might add things up differently than we do, and secondly, sincerity of intent. And that Avi Weiss story goes a long way in terms of that. The realization that that Jew who, who, was, in, who was in Frankfurt and, and believed that the study of biology can bring one close to Hashem was seeking the same thing that that Jew in Vilna or that Jew, or, 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 or that Jew in the Ukraine by opposing the study of, of, of God's uh, creation believed he was doing the same thing. And the respect of that spiritual intent. Now, when the shita becomes dangerous, and again, here again, I think the, the Avi Weiss Marshall is a good Marshall again. Because here, clearly you're speaking about groups that feel that the other group is endangering Kal Yisrael. That their shittas, would their shittas be adopted? It's actually going to endanger the Jewish people. So here, here I would propose the following. And again, this is extremely difficult for us to do because mentally it, it doesn't compute so comfortably. But I would think that one can be passionate and one can work with passion while still conferring spiritual dignity upon the legitimate intent of our opponent. So that I could say, um, I believe that uh, Kach was a grave danger to the Jewish people. I believe that Kach was a grave danger to the people. And I would work against it. And I would work against it with passion. But at the same time, I would grant dignity upon the intention of my opponent and acknowledge that they too are working for what they see as the good of Christ. This is a tough road to hope a tough road to hope. But I think if we're going to talk about Achdus, and we're going to talk about Achdus, honestly, we have to realize these are the issues that have to be discussed and have to be, have to be dealt with. Now let's take some of the other examples we were talking about. Let's take, let's take uh, examples that start to come close to stepping outside of orthodoxy. And uh, let's be frank, that when um, Rav Shach uh, criticized Lubavitch for, for certain things, he was saying that, that this uh, tradition about sleeping in the sukkah but other topics, that since they do not se- did not seem to him to be based upon any source, and again, um, he felt that this was a stepping beyond the parameters of legitimate halakhic Judaism. This, this was not um, um, an area in which they were taking Torah sources and adding them up in a proper way. And how are we to judge the claims made? And by Hasidim especially, you get a lot of these claims, extraordinary claims that, you know, somebody who goes to Uman on Rosh Hashanah, you know, or Rav Nachman is going to take him out of hell by his payas, and, 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 and these sorts of things. And how are we to judge these claims? And how are we to judge those that view these claims in such a way, especially, again, who cares if, you know, where a person is Rosh Hashanah, it's no big difference. But if somebody says uh, we are exempt from, uh, from the chiv of sleeping in the sukkah, not because, again, I'm not talking about the exemptions that we have because it's cold, because all the, I'm talking about it doesn't exist. That there's a cheshman, or a makif, a whole Kabbalistic cheshman, which began in Chabad 100 years ago. Or maybe they would say 150 years ago, but whatever it is, it began now. And how, how are we to look at that? And... Um, and finally, again, when we talk about the ultra-left of orthodoxy, the, 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 the nether reaches of the, of the feminist movement, uh, 
I got in the mail a few days ago since I'm a, uh, apparently I'm a subscriber to the Orthodox Jewish Feminist Alliance uh, mailing list. <laughs> so I got a letter in the mail um, around two weeks ago from the Rebetzin. And, and the Rebetzin wrote to me that she's stepping down as, as president of the alliance. And, and the Rebetzin said that she always believed that there must be equality, but there can be distinction between the sexes. But the new generation of Orthodox Jewish feminists believes that even if you have equality, as long as there are any distinctions, tarnished. And she said, this is going to be the issue that will have to be debated between the next generation of Orthodox Jewish feminists, whether any distinctions at all, even if they're equal, but any distinctions at all, or whether that has to be done away with or not. This is the letter I got from the, the, uh, the Gazagin letter from, from the Rebels. Now, the question becomes, when one is moving over into an area where one proclaims things like, you know, where, where there's a rabbinic will, there's a halachic way, and, uh, and the driving force of one's psyche seems to be always social trendiness and the evolving moral consciousness of society seems to be the, the major driving force of one's agenda and that one begins to, in the name of this, to dismember the halachic structure. So there again the question becomes, where are we, where are we at, and do, do we extend the same feelings of achtas there as well? To someone who claims to be orthodox, but that yet we feel has stepped out, has stepped out of orthodoxy. Here I think um, we can do no more than take counsel with those we regard as our spiritual advisors and study each case on its own merit and reach our own conclusions. Do we want to say that this Lubavitcher tradition, although seeming to be pressing and perhaps breaking the halachic envelope, is somehow legitimate? Do we want to say that perhaps it is illegitimate but since it emanates from a sincerity of belief that it's still somehow within the parameters? Do we want to say that if the Rebetzin and, 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 and her um, cohorts and, and her rabbis and rabbiuses can, can somehow conjure up, conjure up the ice? And again, of course, the question is how is that different than reform or conservative? Because, of course, obviously they too are claiming to represent what is authentic Judaism, or at least certainly conservative. Judaism would claim to be representing authentic Judaism. I don't know if reform would make that claim necessarily. But um, I think that as a practical matter, as a practical matter, um, these are very dangerous and troubling questions. Because once we draw a circle that brings those who have pushed and perhaps broken the envelope of orthodoxy, we bring them in do we, in a sense, legitimatize their enterprise? On the other hand, if we drew a, draw a circle that counts them out, that excludes them, have, do we not then push them, push them further? So this, I think, is a, is a terrible, terribly painful and difficult issue. 
and I do not have for you uh, clear-cut guidelines on this issue. Um, I, liked, I liked to say always, in, until the ultra-left of orthodoxy began to began to assert itself uh, in, in ways that it hadn't for a long time. I like to always say, you know, from the Turikata to Ramaz, we're all in, and I, don't, I would always tell my Talmidim that, listen, you know, whatever divides us, but what, we are all united on the basics of Yiddishkeit, and, and the, the, the distinction between, between, um, between Ramaz and, and the conservative Jew is all the distinction in the book, because they are believers and they are pra- practitioners of Judaism and the conservative Jew. all Rahmanus and mitigation and Tikshanishba, all hope settle, but they are objectively out. But again, this becomes more difficult as time goes on. It becomes more difficult because society has become and is becoming increasingly decadent. And the contradiction between the norms of Torah and the norms of society are becoming ever and ever wider. And as I always say, I have no doubt this may sound terribly shocking, but it's so pushed, it's so clear that I have no doubt that when the social stigma, which is today attached to anti-feminism, will tomorrow be attached to opposition to the, the opposition to homosexual practices, there is no doubt in my mind that the left of orthodoxy will seek tricks to legitimatize it. They can't not, because their driving force is. That and again, it, it, it's very hard to fall. It's very hard for some people not to fall into this trap. We all fall into this trap because when you hear a thousand times a day the same propaganda machine churning out the same message of egalitarianism or churning out the same propaganda machine, you know, we're consenting adults and what's wrong and it's only natural and they're, they're, what can they do and they're stuck with it, and then it becomes very difficult. And and first one mo- one moves over to a a, a therapeutic tolerance and then one moves over to a moral tolerance, and slowly but surely, there's a slippery slope, and one has arrived in modernity, lock, stock, and barrel. So it's very difficult, because we sometimes are at a loss as to how to articulate the traditional view, because all avenues of society, media, TV, movies, government, courts, everybody, the whole, and there's, there's no question in my mind that homosexual marriage is today forbidden, but will absolutely be legitimatized in all of America in another 20 years. There's no question about it, because the, the force of all these movements is eventually to triumph. They always win at the end of the day, because society no longer has a rationale to oppose them. The only rationale to oppose them is the traditional one. Society no longer has the traditional opposition, so it's just, they're just defending what is to them sort of the whiff of an empty bottle. And therefore, at the end of the day, it will have to happen. And then what will, and then those whose moral consciousness is shaped by this evolving moral consciousness of society, they will have to go along with it. And what are we to say? What are we to say as this process goes on and on and on and on? So these are very difficult and painful questions. However, I would leave you on this last and complicated area one, one final thought. Listen, we call this topic orthodox achtis. Is it possibly really wanted? We have to have a tremendous sense of achtis and a tremendous sense of how to sell, even to non-Orthodox Jews. So that, hallelujah, hey, the day will come when we will conclude that the ultra-left has tumbled over the cliff. Nope. We don't owe them less Ahavis Israel. We don't owe them less empathy and less midfield and less love and less compassion and less brotherhood than we owe to our Reformed Conservative brethren. So 
even if we say they're beyond the pale in terms of belief and practice, no, still have a, a strong sense in which we should be caring about them uh, and loving them. Um, I've tried to paint to you what I think is a possible way to maintain actus within orthodoxy by granting legitimacy of the person's intent and legitimacy of his discussion and presentation of sources. But let's go beyond that sort of dry, dry presentation for a moment. And I'd like to read you just a, just a little, a little snippet here. Um, the following, following sefer, following quote. This is a certain Rebbe speaking to his chassidim. It's in his tzavah, his, last, his spiritual last will and testament. He says, uh, I, I beg of you that you should not be from those kitos hachassidim who speak Lashon Hara on, on other groups. Chas milahaske milelo bedera chazeh shel hapsoim of the fools. Kizeh was that my will? To tear one Jew from his fellow, The whole purpose of the path of the Baal Shem Tov is to bring true Achtos into the world. That we should be attached to Mukusharim and Tai Zelazah. Al Ezamin Chasidis, Chasvashal Miladaba, I'll here he expands it beyond Chasim, says, Chasvashal Miladaba, Olochal Mishamam and Baburi Oilam, whoever believes in the Rebunish Oilam, Sorah Leahovaisa, we have to love him, Vololachalik, Bain 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 Chasid, the Chasid, the Gam Leahov, yes, it's so in the Gersham to love all Jews, Hagam Shaina Chasidim, Rak Bishen Yisrael Yuchuna. Even they're called Jewish. Kikulam chafetzim. They all desire lahagdil kedusha shmoi yisbarach v'yisalom. Again, making allowance for certain provincial prejudices in this presentation. Um, we move on to the end of it, and he says. Uh, he says. Therefore, if anybody wants to approach our chevra, he has to take upon himself not to be mashpal any other kat or any other individual Jew who is a mammon in Hashem. And then he goes on to say that this, this period between Jews creates a sense of periods above, whatever that means, but it's something damaging in the heavens. And he says it's makav the gula and so on. So, so the author of this letter author of this letter is uh, is Rabaro Laroth, the founder of Hasidus um, Toldasar. Passed away in, uh, in the mid 1940s, and is generally not associated, at least in the public mind, with uh, um, with these sort of sentiments. Um, however, making allowance again for certain limitations of time and place, which we all have. All, all limited by time and place. It's an extraordinary statement, I think, in terms of begging and pleading to Klai Yisrael, to his Hasidim, he was asking, but it can be applied to all of us, begging and pleading that we not cause a Pirids, Ben Hadavekim, Ben Sharim, 
anybody who's tied to the Rebbeinu Shalom in any way, we shouldn't separate ourselves from that person. Now, I don't pretend to tell you that uh, Rebbeinu would he be standing here next to me, would have applied uh, this philosophy in quite the broad strokes that I have applied it. And uh, probably he would have had a far larger group that to be regarded as beyond the pale to whom we would have had to apply the Tinnik Shanishba Ahava Sisra. But nonetheless, I think if we strip this of its limitations of time and place and provinciality, it offers us perhaps a, a possible Mahalach. So, we leave here tonight, I think, um, somewhat like the, the ancient mariner. We, we rise from the meal uh, sadder yet wiser men. We rise uh, realizing that uh, the albatross creates certain difficulties. We understand that Achtis is not quite the easy matter that we once thought it was. And we now realize, as we might not have realized an hour ago, that uh, in the classic phrase, we have met the enemy and he is us. That the difficulties in achieving Achtis is not a problem for Yenem, it's a problem for Zif. Because each of us harbors certain deep loyalties and attachments to the particular shittas that we have chosen for our families and our, our, and, and, and our own lives. And it is extraordinarily difficult to accord the proper, the proper love and respect to similar choices of other from Eden. But at least we know the seriousness of the calling. And again, my own personal perspective, having journeyed from a point in my life where I said, listen, these groups have to be fighting because given the givens of their assumptions, there's just no way they're not going to be fighting, you know, my early 90s assumption. To my point where I was saying in the late 90s that we have to somehow move beyond that. I really feel and I'm committed to the notion that we have to move beyond that. I also am deeply pessimistic as to whether we really can. Uh, because the question of do we really want it? The Vishen Srebra of Kaimaya once said that there's a special chain that the Rebbein Shalom gives every chassan and every Rebbe that he feels somehow his derech, his thing is at the, the ay, 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 and and, and views others with a certain and at this point in Jewish history again all these aspects of we really have to come to the point where we can say as, as, as Rabbi Weiss did say at that time that um, if that Jew is saying what he's saying on the basis of sources and because he wants to save Jewish lives then I may fight him I'm going to oppose him but I'm going to accord him love and respect we can fight and oppose and yet accord love and respect. It's a difficult road to hoe. It's very difficult. But certainly I think in the pre-Purim days, the Leif Kanoisis Kol Yehudim, certainly it's a calling worth its name. Um, those who feel that the differences are too important, then at least they will know in the future not to be so glib about us. Um, on the other hand, I feel that the calling of Ahavis Israel and the calling of Hidavik and Midoisav, Mahu Rachem, Avatu Rachem, is the greatest imperative we can possibly have to bring a, to bring a little kindness, bring a little kindness into the world.